0: The best argument for this is that there were so many prescriptions that these pharmacies probably should have been saying there's no way that they're all legitimate. I agree with the sentiment,
1: which is they're frustrated, but you have to follow the law. There are too many people in between this pharmacy and the manufacturing and marketing. It's hard to point the finger to them to say that you are actually trying to convince people to abuse these substances, right? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. We're coming to you from the West Coast in sunny Santa Monica, California. Ricky, how's your trip out west been?
0: It's been good. I've been a hermit with my cat writing my book, so no complaints.
1: What is it like taking a cat cross country? Do you have to check the cat separately? Um, or do they yeah, you they no charge
0: party? you um she's like she comes in the cabin and they charge you 125 dollars each way just to have her where your carry-on would be which is kind of frustrating but what's um, the
1: latest with this like emotional support yeah no that situation? doesn't apply like Not you anymore?
0: have to no it's like i think they also lowered the weight at, like under 15 pounds but she's like five pounds so she's she's all good how's how's surfing going out here for you know you? i'm trying
1: to be as relatable as possible to the audience. So <laughs> I've been surfing in malibu uh-huh. and uh it's just a quiet place and really good waves, and it's known to be like a really crowded surf break, but lately mm. it's been, at least this week, there's nobody around, I guess, because rich people go somewhere else in August, so it's been pretty chill. It's my first time ever in Malibu, so mm. I, uh, yeah, it's been nice, and then I'm heading back in a couple days. So
0: Beautiful. I'll be here writing.
1: Well, on today's show, we'll talk about diversity training and all the many forms it can take, as well as a huge ruling in Ohio holding pharmacies liable for driving the opioid epidemic. Then we'll discuss all the turmoil in the teaching profession these days and wrap up with a few rapid-fire updates. But first, let's start today with a little Roger and Ebert impression. Ricky and I put ourselves through the absolute joy of watching the Netflix movie Purple Hearts this weekend so we could join the conversation around this movie that purports to depolarize America. You know, red meets blue, blue hates red, but red fake marries blue, and purple lives happily ever after. And I'm glad to report that you could speed up movies on Netflix. But Ricky, are we renaming this podcast Purple Minds or what?
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, but so I think it's important first to explain why we're talking about this in the first place. Um, which is this, Yeah, please let me know. Even though this is like a, a very Disney channel seeming movie, it has had a kind of outsized cultural effect that I don't think a lot of people expected. It was the most watched movie of August. A hundred million hours of viewing time just in its first week alone, and it continues to um be I think Love watched and rage watched by many, but um essentially the storyline is this this girl who's And um, a
1: little bit of a plot. we're gonna say a little spoiler alert here, but this movie sucks. I don't want to give it this fine. away, so you we're can saving you some fast time. forward if you yeah. if you don't wanna
0: know. Yeah. But um you know, this girl's very kind of classic, stereotypical SJW type. Girl. What's an SJW? Social justice warrior. Oh, okay. You're not listening to enough Rogan. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like just very, very like classic of the left, a little abrasive in that. Oh, sense. I'm sorry. Is that what and, we are? And <laughs> and I'm 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 going to. This is this, but this. We talk about not doing both sides. This yeah. movie is like the epitome of both sides right. And then she meets this guy who's like with a whole group of buddies who are very like abrasively like gung-ho military. And these are Marines, They're Marines fresh out of the are, basic training. Yes, right. that are about to deploy. And she can't afford her insulin. And he is like in debt to drug dealers. And yep. somehow they hatch this plot that we're going to get married. And then he gets money for having a spouse. And she gets the health insurance and then they fall in real love of course yeah. and then he gets injured while he's deployed and they're living together and I I guess in the end he gets a, arrested for it but then they're going to like it's only six months for the fraud yeah yeah, yeah. I don't know anyways so that's that's the plot um spoiled
1: <laughs> <laughs> well plot is spoiled uh the the outcome you know them falling in love is a rom-com we knew uh-huh. this was gonna happen I just wanna give our audience a sense of what this movie sounds like. So let's go to one clip. This is when they first meet and hash out this plan of theirs.
0: Why don't you have any other choice? don't see how that's your business. Kind of is. I am possibly about to marry you. Why?
1: I need the extra two grand a month married guys get.
0: That's it? And I'm supposed to trust you here? Trust
1: me. Look, if I can trust a lib who doesn't give a shit about the law or the military, I can sure I say I have
0: an it. ethical code that doesn't include blind obedience and I desperately need this to literally survive. Whereas you could be I don't know, stockpiling supplies for your bro militia. I'm leaving. This was a mistake. Bro militia.
1: Ricky, are we going to give out some Oscars for this one?
0: I think we're going to pass. Um I think she's like a former Disney Channel actress so it kind of it it follows through in that theme. I mean, the acting's bad, the the, the, the plot writing is, is bad, the is, acting
1: is bad, the plot is bad. I and think the it plot could have been fine. I feel positions. like the,
0: the plot could have been fine if it was executed more gracefully and it wasn't like forcing this narrative of like red and blue so intensely. Right. Like I I want to like it. I'm basically their target demographic, maybe a few years ahead of it. But yeah, like yeah, again, you know, yeah. I I want to like it. I I don't know. I, I wanted I, to like
1: this movie, too. I felt the same way about Greenbrook. Everybody was telling me not to like it, and I liked it. This movie just is, is poorly executed at every possible level. Yeah. I, all the dialogue sounds like this. There's there's worse. Like, you know, there's a line, what does your tattoo say? Socialism now. I mean, this is like buzzwords. And mm-hmm. it's hard to even place the timing of this because they're deploying to Iraq. And I know that there's still some military activity on the ground in Iraq, but it, it the kind of stuff that they're doing doesn't seem like it would be happening today, but the language they're using, like, you know, she's flying a Black Lives Matter flag. A lot of these buzzwords around certain wokeisms and certain mm-hmm. right wing stereotypes seem to be coming from today. There's a lot of controversy around this movie including the fact that they were coordinating, it seems like, with the um, the U.S. federal government and the military, and the writer of this show admitted that she changed some of the dialogue in response to certain feedback
0: from the military, mm. which seems problematic. But, like, we just talked about Top Gun and that stuff happens. Like, this was in exchange to film on the, like, the at base, the actual base. Camp Pendleton. So that's just kind of how it flies if you want to utilize military, like, property right. to be to ha- to make a movie that's just what happens well
1: what's interesting is they didn't flag this next clip we're going to play which if i were the military i'm not sure i'd want a show portraying uh, a marine which is what's happening here saying some of the things that happen in this scene so n- let's fast uh-huh. forward this is after the two have married right and yeah. he's about to deploy and they're having dinner with the spouses of all the marines in his unit Mm -hmm. and one of the Marines uh, says something quite offensive, and she reacts to it.
0: Come on, get him up. I'd like to make another
1: toast. (laughs) This one is to life, love, and hunting down some
0: goddamn Arabs, baby! Woo! Really? Oh, boy. Yeah.
1: You got a problem with that? Yeah, you.
0: (laughs) It's just... Arab is an ethnicity and you're making it sound like you're hunting down everyone of a certain ethnicity, which sounds kind of problematic. Yeah, Cassie, he gets it. He's just
1: starting the pot. Thank you for the sensitivity training, all right? I'm out here serving my country. What are you doing exactly?
0: I don't know. Apparently I'm telling a Marine he shouldn't be hunting down Arabs. Okay, okay no, 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 And what
1: exactly would you like us to do, huh? Go over there and teach them pronouns? All right there's a lot to talk about here obviously well, it's clearly
0: proof that like it's not military propaganda straight like right. to your point it's not like they censored every single they thing should to make have it censored
1: look, that if i, I mean, were in the middle I, I don't know what they took out to, if this is what stayed in honestly
0: i i mean i feel like they're trying to demonstrate that there is an extreme on both sides of the political spectrum Uh-oh. like no i mean that's what they're trying to demonstrate right. and that's like, I mean, it's a lot of people are saying that they're not, they're but not what's showing extreme their,
1: about what she's saying in this scene. I know that no, I'm a not lot saying, of, I'm not, yeah, saying, yeah. In yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying in this scene, I'm not saying in this scene,
0: I'm saying in other parts where right. she's like, she's a little aggressively like effusive with but her got, values, but I'm not saying it's not, it's the problem is this, this movie is like an equivalence thing and it's, yeah. I don't know, just, the whole thing is, it could have been done way better if it wasn't trying to like balance the scales constantly. Right. And I think that's where I come down on this.
1: I think the takeaway for me in this film is that people really hated this for a particular reason. And I kind of wish it delivered because the people who hate it often are people who I want to kind of push to see past some of their divisions and actually come together and have common ground. Mm -hmm. And I just wish this movie did it better. You know, like Green Book, I actually think it was a well-executed film. This movie sucks, like on every level. And so it really bothers me that people liked it, but it also... It bothers me that we couldn't deliver a better version of this for the people who truly do contribute to polarization every day.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't bother me that people like it. It doesn't bother me that people don't.
1: Poor taste bothers me.
0: It shouldn't. I mean, it's just just kind of fluffy. It's fine. I don't know. It's people coming together. It's not very well done. You can have poor taste. It's okay with me.
1: So let's turn to something that the Purple Hearts couple definitely would not agree on, diversity training. They'll get a different definition for what that even means depending on who you ask, but Ricky, there's some new data in the news that gives us an opportunity just to revisit this larger debate debate around DEI, CRT, anti-racism, et cetera. What's going on?
0: So right now, colleges, a new study found that 19% of faculty positions require diversity statements in order to apply for them. So you have to write a statement saying that you uphold whatever DEI sort of standards Standards the school holds um, and 21.5% of schools have DEI criteria in their tenure sc- standards and you know historically college campuses are kind of the incubator for the anti-racist or um, DEI practices that society more broadly tends to adopt and so I think it's an interesting like place to hone in but then to also look more broadly at how this is affecting schools and corporations and how you know this is this was a relatively small industry before 2020 and before the societal unrest that we had and now it's boomed into a billion dollar industry and there's a lot of money there's a lot of demand there's some people that are doing it well there's some people who aren't and i think that it's an important Time to kind of have a conversation about what does this actually mean? Why is CRT part of the conversation? Is that even a thing in yeah. schools and all these like culture war debates and actually talk about the the training and the stuff at hand, which is very disparate and very wide-ranging.
1: Yeah, and, and what we'll try to do is talk about some of these terms that are being thrown around and try to explain to the best of our knowledge what they originally meant versus how people are using the terms today, and we'll try to situate different approaches, both within the university setting and K-12 in each of these sort of terms or the continuum of different mm-hmm. types of trainings that can exist. So there are a couple of terms that we're hearing a lot right now. CRT or critical race theory is one of them. And this is an academic discipline that you know was crafted decades ago, largely on, on law school campuses mm-hmm. among legal academics that kind of disappeared for a while, but now has come back with a vengeance. There's a yeah. huge debate about where this term came from. I'll just say from from where I sit, there were people who were on the left that I know were starting to use this term to describe a wider range of diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI mm-hmm. type initiatives a couple years ago. And then there were people on the right, like Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute, and then now politicians like Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. who kind of grabbed onto yeah. it and said, all right, this term sounds really scary and ominous. I'm going to paint with a broad brush, and to be clear, I think there were people painting with a broad brush who wanted these initiatives and then there are people who are painting with a broad brush you wanted to stop them and or weaponize them politically but it originated as this kind of esoteric legal term but Mm -hmm. now includes a lot of different dei or diversity equity inclusion type initiatives and that the dei stuff in general includes a lot and we use crt dei to include respect training unconscious bias training cultural competency training civility training sensitivity training Stuff to make an inclusive workplace, preventing discrimination and harassment, and that can include everything from, hey, here's how to not treat people different based on the color of their skin, like stuff that I think most people would agree is really good training, mm-hmm. to other things like declarations or affirmations or you know, having to, you know, in certain cases, there are corporations asking people to write letters to each other. Yeah, so Sandia say,
0: Labs um, requiring white men to write a letter of apology to women and people of color.
1: Right. And yeah. so I think we talked about the university setting, and we'll link to a few articles there where there are examples of people like who, I'm, who will say like, hey, I'm an engineering professor. I'm not sure why I need to go through this process of like yeah. the more aggressive versions of this. And so I think what is disconcerting is that there is – There's super broad terms being used to apply to so many different types of training and initiatives across this country.
0: Well, so the interesting thing to me with CRT is I think it it really effectively the way that the term is being used really effectively distilled for people. Like a way to point at things that they were seeing in their day to day life, like I I've told this on the podcast before, but when I was fourteen, I was like sent to a different building on MLK Day in my high school campus. Affinity groups, they in affinity groups, like as a fourteen year old and like told on MLK Day that the way that we talk about race is by saying you can't talk about it with the people with anyone who doesn't look like you, which is to me feels very counterintuitive and i think that's like a very fundamental basis of like to me that's not pro-human and common humanity that's that's divisive that's that's driving divides especially with young students and so we have this like real phenomenon that a lot of people have seen in some ways where this just gets like it turns out to manifest in kind of an ugly way even though i think it's well intentioned i don't think my school was trying to be divisive but, um, well, just Rufo, to define what you were
1: talking about, by the way, these affinity groups is just just for people who don't know it. Based on the context, are separating people on the basis of race, yeah, within either schools, companies, etc. And there are just all sorts of questions people could have about whether this is a good or bad it's idea. Such
0: a bad idea, like yeah. <laughs> because you know, like my generation is super diverse, and we had to have a a different building for mixed race kids.
1: Well, that's where, like, yeah, what? that's my question always is, I don't necessarily identify i'm half white half indian yeah. but i don't really identify I, I grew up in this country so yeah. I, I don't really think of myself as one or the other and and all of my friends growing up were different than me you know the only two people i know who are the same mixture of ethnicities as me are my brother and sister so it, it kind of leaves those of us out but it's yeah. also like this is a direction that i think a lot of my friends on the left have taken away from this you call it common humanity. I, the approach that Barack Obama took was let's let's talk about the difficulty that that different races in this country have had. Yeah. Let's talk about progress, but also the obstacles that exist. But let's get in rooms together and try to see what connects us. And yeah. you know, I, I, I mentioned this anecdote on the podcast before, but he did a, a summit, the first ever Obama summit after he uh, left office. And he opened that summit by saying real change comes through persuasion. And openness to others and if your starting point is you can't get me because you're not a woman you can't get me because you're straight you can't get me because you're black you can't get me because you're white if that's your initial starting point then you will not grow and you certainly will not help the person Next to you grow. Somehow that version of the you know, the left progressivism yeah. has has now been pushed to the side by this new dynamic, which is all right, we're gonna only see the differences in each other. Yeah. And to me, that's really dangerous.
0: Yeah, and it's just telling people down to group identity and not individuality. And I see that I saw that all the time on my college campus where every time basically we'd have these little like like seminar discussions and everyone would preface their as a this before they say anything that's even like vaguely controversial, or that, and like, that's just not a way to have conversations. I think there's a whole generation that's been brought up that way. It's not very healthy. And I think, you know, we want to strive to a world where race matters less than it does now and than it has historically. And I think a lot of people rightfully are concerned when children and and people in schools are being like forced to be aggressively aware of that in a time in life where you're innocent still and you see your friends as your friends and not for their group characteristics and so i'm i'm especially sympathetic to parents in this conversation i'm less concerned about private corporations and what they want to do i i can take issue with coca-cola telling their like having a DEI training about how to be less white, but, um, or that was one part of their DEI training, not the whole thing. But, um, I think the government and doing it in, in governmental entities concerns me and schools doing it concerns me. Colleges. I, will openly criticize but you know they're free to do that yeah Um, and i would
1: imagine you'd make a distinction between a private and a public yeah i think well
0: and especially with public colleges there have been some instances where like it's compelled speech where you have to affirm principles or you have to say like this is the correct thing in training sessions fire has defended people who um like i think there was an example of a, a girl who was uh training to be a ta and she had to accept like propositions that she felt were debatable and not necessarily like written in stone in order to get employment through a university so there's examples of that there is the private public distinction but it also doesn't mean that the private sphere is immune from criticism but I think like the conversation becomes of course we need to make sure that people can interact with one another in a collegiate way and like be co-workers and not Actively discriminate against each other. Like, I think we can pretty much all agree on that, aside from a very small minority of people. And I think there comes a point where is it really your employer's job to be saying like, here's your implicit bias and this is how you unlearn it? Or is it about explicit bias and like people actually doing something and like making sure that people, like I don't know, just what is the role of an employer here is my question. Well, I think like, There's some level of tribalism that's just ingrained in being a human being and a healthy society teaches you how not to act on it. But I think like going through these implicit bias trainings and like pointing their finger yeah, at people, like I, don't, I you, don't see that as being effective. But you said
1: a healthy society teaches people how not to act on it. But society is universities, just K to 12 institutions is corporations. Now, I don't want them, you know, doing what California did, which is they had third graders who were, this is what the the language used, deconstructed their racial identities and ranked themselves according to their, quote, power and privilege in schools. And they told students that they live in a dominant culture of white, middle-class, cisgender, educated, able-bodied Christian English speakers. Now, that seems excessive for third graders. Somewhere between that And say, like, looking, like, you know, using actually evidence-based research to say, hey, like, Ian Harris, for example, my law school professor did a study of just people going to buy cars. And how in Chicago, he looked at, I think, some, you know, huge amount of car dealerships and showed that, you know, black buyers when they go to buy a car versus white buyers the black buyers are discriminated against they get a higher price they're treated differently than the white buyers and that goes all the way up to say who becomes a United States senator who becomes president of the United States who are the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies like this is playing out every day i think it you know it affects how you walk down the street and how you view somebody
0: well or, i don't you know. but i don't think that's like what we're debating i think the question then becomes what do we do about it and is it a corporation and an hr like, or a DEI consultant who I don't know what the credentialism is to really be that any at this point, yeah. like, like, wh- like, what do we do about it? Is it just about like cultivating values as a society and, and cultivating like a pro-human sort of value? Or is it about like making people take tests to see how, how implicitly biased they are? And there's a, there's, there's very few studies about whether or not DEI is effective. And I think, that is something that we should be asking ourselves before we put kids through it, before we put government officials through it. Like, and we we um, kind of put the stamp of approval like in the public sense on it. I think that's concerning, but well, one study did find that unconscious bias training causes people to like relinquish their responsibility because they feel that they're not racist. They're not act. They're not going around being racist to people in their day-to-day lives. They have some sort of implicit bias and they're like, Oh, well I guess I can't do anything about that. And I think that's, I think that's kind of like the end point of this. And a lot of, a lot of people, I think, feel like these sort of training sessions are preachy, and then they start like in in like they just kind of are allergic to it. Right. Where whereas I think that there's like a minimal, common humanity approach that's being taken by some people in this movement. I think there's a demand for it. Like Chloe Valdary, who I interviewed for the New York Post, she has a training program called the Theory of Enchantment, and there's been she she manages to frame it in a way that's not divisive. It's more like self-oriented and not like grouping people apart. And, uh, you yeah. know, it's, it, there's just different models of it. And I think that we're at a very early point where there's some clearly irresponsible versions. And that's why people are like throwing out the whole system.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree that there's better versions of this, but part of... Part of the term divisive to me is something I want to be careful about because, you know, what I talked about, e E&R and is a study. It's divisive to treat people differently on the basis of the color of their skin when they're buying a car. Now, if I'm shining the light on that, I'm not being divisive. No, they're being divisive. No, so if I'm a but, trainer saying, hey, these things tend to happen in society, I want you to know about them and try to overcome those. I'm not sure that trainer is being divisive. That's not what we're divisive. fighting about. Yeah. Well, here, some though. people like, are, I think. Well, I know.
0: mean, yeah, of course there's a gradation here.
1: And yeah, and I think to just kind of put my cards on the table on this one I, I agree that a lot of these trainings are bad and s- in certain cases in the public school system for example public universities I would be way more exacting on the institutions to prevent them from doing these things versus corporations who I think should be free to do whatever they want the stop woke act in Florida which we've talked about and some other measures around yep. the country being proposed would actually prevent Private those corporations employers. from doing that which I think is wrong I think it's I a agree. violation of their free speech rights yep. uh, I also think that the way that they're they're framing it Uh, Makes it so what I just described about Ian Ayers in the car dealership would be illegal under the the Stop Woke Act. That to me seems wrong. There's also some of these laws in the K-12 system like Oklahoma has a proposal that says any teaching that America has more culpability in general than other nations in the institution of slavery, that one race is the unique oppressor in the institution of slavery that another race is a unique victim in the institution of slavery. That is part of this language. Yeah, That is insane to me. And that is only a racist could write that law, in my opinion, honestly. Like, like, who believes that the U.S. is just one of like all the other countries and, you know, like everybody was wrong. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. have a unique problem with slavery. I think everybody can admit that. It wasn't like the white people were owning slaves. Like we can just say that. I don't need, I don't yeah. know why everybody's so. No, I mean, damn that's obviously that.
0: like an extreme. I yeah. think though, but I think that that that's one case. Whereas I think uh, like across the country, we see a lot of laws that are based on feeling anguish and guilt. And that's what makes something illegal, which is too subjective. But I mean, I th- I just think that we need to grapple with what, what are the guardrails and certainly like the stop Oak act and, and, mandating that private employers can't cause employees to feel anguish is just not the path forward.
1: Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Three of the country's biggest pharmacy chains, CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart, must pay two Ohio counties a total of $650 million after a federal judge ruled last week in a landmark decision that they bear responsibility for their role in the state's crippling opioid epidemic. I think when you look behind the data, about mm-hmm. these set of counties, it is staggering what we're talking about here. So there were more than 80 million opioid pills shipped to Trumbull County, which has a population of less than 200,000. And this was from 2006 to 2012. So 80 million pills for 200,000 residents. Uh, and then more than 60 million pills were shipped to Lake County with a population of about 230,000 over that period. I actually happened to be in this count these counties during the Obama campaign as a, an organizer for those counties during those initial years of this epidemic. Ricky, what do you make of this decision because this is some novel legal ground and this is a huge judgment. If you if you were to extrapolate this to other counties the, across uh, the the country where pharmacies operate, this would bankrupt those companies.
0: Yeah, this is um this is definitely I mean, I'm not the legal expert between the two of us, but to me, I think the precedent set here is um probably a little concerning just in in terms of what liability really is. But essentially the argument that they made, these counties made, is that they were each cost about a billion dollars in law enforcement, social services, and court expenses as a result of this epidemic. Um, And so it's based on the public nuisance theory that essentially the pharmacies are responsible for like the the reallocation of public funds in order to fight something that they originally caused by dispersing these pills. Um, And a similar case or two similar cases in Oklahoma and California have failed just because it's it's difficult to say like, oh, this is the pharmacy that caused that. And so to me, I mean, I think like these are legal products. They're prescription pills. They're they're legal. They're not illegal. They're being given to real patients. These patients I mean, obviously, one of the I think the best argument for this is that there were so many prescriptions that these pharmacies probably should have been saying there's no way that they're all they're all true or they're all legitimate. But theoretically, these are real patients from licensed doctors. They have their prescription. It's illegal to deny them their prescription. Um, The pharmacies never marketed the pills. They didn't manufacture them themselves. And they had nothing to do with how these people then used them. Um, and so drug makers and distributors had already paid out a $26 billion uh, settlement like nationwide in 2021. And I think that's kind of where you need to point the fingers a little bit more than the pharmacies. I don't know like are pharmacists supposed to be like nope, sorry, like not no pills for you on your prescription. Like I don't know. In certain states
1: they're required as we talked about in the abortion debate when we were talking about abortion pills. In certain states the pharmacists are actually required to fill uh, prescriptions that people bring to them. Yeah, so, I think
0: that I mean I think that's like you can't deny someone a prescription of a doctor. Uh, licensed yeah. it to them I think that's legally the case so I think it's I mean it's very difficult and there's also issues with um, accusations that the the judge was pressuring the defendants um, the companies into settling on it and it's not that I'm not hugely you sympathetic them, to this yeah
1: he I think he threatened them saying that they would go into bankruptcy if they went to trial okay, or something yeah. in the equivalent Okay. Yeah. I also saw
0: he said we don't need a lot of briefs and we don't need trials none of them are going to solve what we've got right. which is um I mean obviously I, I This is a hugely emotional which is issue. Totally but you have to follow
1: the law and this public no, nuisance interpretation is novel and we're going to link in the show notes there's a, a law firm that basically goes through if people really want to get into the weeds on this. Uh, they go through the the law about public nuisance, essentially saying, like, outside of a few cases, this is a San Francisco case that's an outlier. But by and large, that theory isn't usually applied in situations like this for some of the reasons that you described. Mm-hmm. There are too many people in between this pharmacy and uh, the manufacturing and marketing of this law. Yeah. So it's hard to point the finger to them to say that you are – actually trying to convince people to abuse these substances, yeah. right? I mean, They're I don't think there's any
0: them. case that they were convincing people to abuse them. Right. Unfortunately. So
1: you, you have that. You have the fact that the law allows this. Yeah. Like they allow these pills, right? So yeah. the pharmacy has very little basis to, you know, affect people's use of it other than to just stop filling prescriptions once again, it causes all sorts of other problems. Uh, and then you have the question of like, is the pharmacy in a position to remedy the problem? Right, yeah. and in this case, it's not some kind of leak of some toxic chemical that the the pharmacy is is covering up, uh, that they could just stop covering up and yeah. they could do, they could clean up the spill. This is this is money damages. Where once again, if you were to apply this case all across the country then you would be bankrupting these pharmacies, which, you know, we were just talking about insulin, right? Like, I think there's this sense that, all right, these are just the big bad, yada, yada, yada. But, Mm -hmm. like, I don't think of pharmacies as the big bad. Like, those are the people who, like, if you need to get that insulin or you need to get another life-saving medicine, there are people working 24 hours in a lot of these places that you go to that are going to fill that prescription. And they're not at fault for the insurance companies charging what they charge our government's inability to give universal yeah. health care our police officers inability to you know actually enforce the laws on the books um, of you know where the doctors are over prescribing yada yada mm-hmm. yada that's a part of the public nuisance here so if you're going to hold the pharmacists accountable there are a lot of people before them some of whom been held accountable many of whom have not including the politicians mm-hmm. and so to me this seems like it, we're pointing the finger in the wrong direction
0: yeah and, i agree
1: and i think this is you know this is Part of the evolving opioid epidemic that we have right now, there's uh, a great Nature magazine article that we'll uh, link to, which talks about the three waves of the opioid epidemic. And if you're, you know, anywhere near my age, you've you've seen the different phases of this mm-hmm. now. And now this accountability. Uh, You know, I would say we're now in the accountability wave, which would be like the fourth wave, Mm -hmm. which I think in in large part is good. But I think there's going to be some overreach here.
0: Yeah, definitely. And this is none of this is to undermine the like human cost here. I have a brother that runs a a treatment facility out in Ohio and he's seen like just how devastating this is. But I think the legal precedent is something that we need to be very careful with. And I, I mean, this just can't be extrapolated on a national level.
1: Yeah. And and my prediction here is that this will be appealed. They won't settle because the settlement prevents them from appealing this. Mm -hmm. I think they appeal it. And I think based on what I've seen, and we'll link to a Wall Street Journal, I'm not a big Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, fan, but I think they actually wrote a pretty damning op-ed just about the judge's impropriety here. Mm -hmm. And I think I'll just end by describing these three waves because I personally have been affected by this too. There was the first wave of the opioid epidemic, which began with uh, prescribing opioids in the 90s, including Oxycontin, Uh, I had a bunch of friends die and a lot of lives being destroyed in Staten Island. We were like Mm -hmm. right in the middle of the beginning of this. And a lot of my friends from high school were affected by it. The second wave, which began in 2010, that's when we started to see overdoses from heroin because there was a crackdown on those original uh, opioids that were being used and and they were being replaced by uh, heroin. And then starting around 2013, we started to see fentanyl. Uh, which we've talked about previously, and that was the third wave. And so now, I think there's a lot of attention on fentanyl and trying to crack down on that. As as our history tells us, there'll be something new after this. Yeah. But there is a renewed uh, set of energy around trying to hold accountable the institutions who marketed this stuff. I think they're now starting to catch people, you know, who I, I think have less culpability in this. And and I'm hoping that we can get treatment right. That we can actually have sensible drug policy in this country and that we have a a better sense of what's coming over our borders, which I think we're not doing any of those things particularly well right now. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot going on in the world of teaching lately. All over the country, teachers are right at the forefront of our culture wars. But before we get to a few of those examples, let's zoom out and take a look at a different question. And this is a question that I think I've been grappling with and we've been grappling with as a show over the past few months. And the question is, is there, in fact, a teacher shortage? And what do we mean when we call it that?
0: Um, Yeah, so I think a lot of the data that we have is on a very local level, and it's hard to get a sense of the national scale of it, even though I think a lot of people do have that local sense that there's a problem here. So what is the national data?
1: Yeah, there's a really great article in Chalkbeat by a writer named Matt Barnum, which obviously we'll link to, and he raises a, a, a... a few uh, different trends that are happening in the teaching profession. Number one, he's saying to, you know, on the side of the people who say there's a teacher shortage, he says, all right, administrators are saying there's a shortage. So mm-hmm. there's uh, as of June 2022, the average American public school reported having 3.44 open teaching positions. Uh, and this is from a, a survey that the U.S. Department of Education did. So that's 3.4 open teaching positions for 35 average staff members per building. So that's pretty mm-hmm. high. So that's one data point. Second is that some districts are adding teachers with new money. a lot of this was COVID, pandemic spending, etc., And that's leading to creation of new positions. So you create okay. all these new positions that, that can be driving uh, a, an appearance of a shortage, but it's not exactly what we think of when we think of a shortage of teachers. Third is that some of the biggest challenges Aren't new at all. So he talks about how high poverty schools are experiencing turnover at nearly twice the rate as affluent schools, which is something that was true before the pandemic. That's not new. And then he says there's no evidence of a teacher exodus during the pandemic. And he talks about actually in the initial stages of the pandemic. Actually, there were more teachers staying put, I think, because the, there were just no other job prospects at that time. Then there was a slight uptick after that. But when you put the two data points together, early pandemic with late pandemic, it actually washes out where there's no new trend. Mm-hmm. And he then he then talks about and this, so let, there's so much more data, but I'll stop with this one. He talks about how there there was a decline in interest in teaching That predated the pandemic. So essentially, this has been a profession that fewer and fewer people are interested in Mm -hmm. before the pandemic even happened.
0: So this is an ongoing trend. But does that mean that there is a legitimate shortage at this point in time? Because I think like there's there is data that says that 75 percent of school districts foresee some degree of a shortage going forward. Forty percent of teachers said they would consider leaving in the next two years. So, do we have a sense of like like this is an exacerbated problem by the pandem- pandemic? Essentially, it's not just that like the pandemic made it happen.
1: Yeah, and the teachers union did this, that survey that you're talking about, and basically said, "All right, there's a ticking time bomb right now. Where maybe there's not a shortage today. We can uh, I'll point to some more data uh, that can that people can look at because it's really regional, but the teachers union." You know, interviewed their own people and, and showed that at least according to their survey pre-pandemic, there's a huge spike of people saying they want to leave the profession. Now, as like the question of is there a shortage? I think if you're a listener, it totally depends on where you live in this country, and there's a 74 article, which we'll link to, which uh, goes through this website called teachershortages.com, which is a very mm. niftily named website. Three education researchers at different universities looked at the data, and they estimate that there are 36,504 full-time teaching positions unfilled around the country. And that could be as high as uh, a little over 52,000. That's significantly lower than the 300,000 that was reported by the teachers unions and the national media. And there's a whole discussion about why those data points are different, but they're at least pouring some cold water on this saying there are fewer mm-hmm. shortages. But they're saying that depending on where you live, it's huge. So if you live in the southeast, for example, in places like Mississippi and Alabama, you're seeing massive shortages. Mm-hmm. Whereas you, if you live in a place like Utah, their vacancy rate is less than 1 per 10,000 students. And so uh, they point to many of the same data that Matt Barnum did and said that, it just totally depends on where you live, the type of positions that we're talking about here.
0: We're seeing another example of turmoil in the teaching profession in Florida, which they have 9,000 vacant positions in that state. Unanimously, the military veteran certification pathway law was passed. Um, Governor DeSantis just signed it into law, which essentially will allow military veterans to become teachers and to do so while they're enrolled in an undergraduate degree program. Um it's a 5-year teaching certificate while they're earning their degree. It would also waive exam fees. It would make them eligible for a $4,000 bonus and also a further $1,000 bonus for like a niche specialization that that they need more teachers for. And uh, there are a good amount of requirements. Like there's there are some people on the internet that are basically saying like oh they can just walk in with nothing. Right. But there there are guardrails on this. They have to be at least 60 credits into their degree. They need to be actively enrolled. Two point five GPA seems a little low, but yep. there's there's something there. Um, they have to pass a state exam on the subject area that they're going to talk about or teach about. Um, they have to go through a background check, forty-eight active duty months, and an honorable discharge. And there are now potentially plans that DeSantis has floated to expand this to law enforcement officers and first responders as well.
1: Well, I think some some of the reactions I've seen out there from teachers is they are not happy. Some of them in Florida about this.
0: Wow, what a devalue to our
1: educators that have. Um, put in the time of you know accomplishing first and foremost uh, a solid four year degree. By having people that are that do not have a, uh, a degree in education, you are deprofessionalizing our careers. Yeah, so I, I think the problem here is I think this is totally dependent on how people view veterans in this mm-hmm. country right now. And first of all, what that last teacher said, I'm pretty sure isn't totally accurate because when I was looking at the licensing law in Florida, you can you don't need an education yeah. degree to get a license. You can have it's a, bachelor's. a you know, general, right? Which I've talked about before. Like we already have problems with certification. Like you can go to college for one thing and teach a different thing in a lot yeah. of cases. And, you know, sometimes you just have to pass an exam to say that you have a certain subject uh, matter knowledge, although there's a huge amount of teachers across the country who don't even pass those certification exams, which could be its own problem, right? But I think in this case, I think that being, you know, serving in our military is a really important experience. It teaches you a lot. I I think it reflects a certain amount of discipline and professionalism. And Mm -hmm. to me, like that set of experiences is probably more valuable to me than, say, an Ivy League, you know, English lit graduate, you know, teaching students. Like, I actually think that veteran could probably have a a lot more, you know, gravitas with students, life experience to make them reliable. You know, they'll be more punctual, potentially. (laughs) They -hmm. can relate to students more. And so, I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we just, like a I would say a couple of months ago, we were talking about a different state that was allowing, Arizona, yeah. yeah, Arizona allowing Wasn't military though. No, but yeah. just, well, it could have been theoretically right. too though. Yeah. Like it, it was just a broader law that was allowing people to go through their education while they're also teaching or at least like kind of apprenticing to teach. Right. And, to me, like I'm all for that, especially in the what they have going on there with 9,000 shortages right now. Like right. It, they they need to do something about it. I I think it's getting blown out of proportion a little bit, People, but I think yeah, are seeing
1: red because they also, see him.
0: And also, like, are, are do we really think they're going to be like millions of mi- mi- military veterans that are now like banging down the doors of the teaching certification office right. to like become teachers. I think this is probably going to be relatively few people, but I think it's a good system theoretically because one of the other major problems that we have as a society is having veterans who come back from service yeah, and then anything for them to we, have, we were yeah. just like, okay, bye. Like right. do your, do your well, thing. Yeah, my
1: brother, when, you know, he got back from Afghanistan, he became a federal corrections officer, which he, you know, is a job he loves and, and is a good fit for him. But why like why are we only opening up a certain amount of jobs to those people? Like first of yeah. all, the Federal Corrections Office is a very difficult job, a very dangerous job, and requires really smart, astute people who are quick on their feet. And, you know, to me I would say that's also true of teaching. Where yeah. You know, you've got to be somebody who can take a group of 30 kids and uh, get them to focus on their learning, inspire them, et cetera. You have to be good with time. You have to be good with planning. All these yeah. types of things are things that I could imagine a veteran doing really well. And there are other hoops they have to jump through. I would actually make this even more permissive. I would, yeah. I would, I would even, you know, the, the 2.5 GPA thing bothers me. But I the think other the three would have been fine. fine.
0: I would have been okay with yeah. three.
1: I'll just say this, like rolling up all the teacher stuff in the background here is, there are a lot of states in this country, Arizona is one of them, that just don't pay their teachers enough. They mm-hmm. don't respect their teachers enough. I think there is a bipartisan um, commitment to create as much bureaucracy as possible for teachers right now. And I think that's pissing them off too. And so I think what we need to do is let teachers teach as much as possible. I still believe in things like standards and you know curriculum standards and, mm-hmm. and standardized testing and all that. But I would, would want to make their lives as easy as possible outside of that pay them more reward the better teachers mm-hmm. uh don't fire people based on on last in first out and yeah you know and then you you do those things i think hopefully you can you know help remedy this shortage and, and you know this this veterans thing is totally fine with me
0: it's interesting to see in different areas of the country um people responding to the opposite problem and quite a An interesting set of ways, including in Minneapolis, where they think that they're going to have layoffs based on a budget cut in their teaching staff um, coming soon. And there's a new provision that's uh, set to begin in spring 2023 when that budget cut is set to take place, where layoffs would essentially no longer be based on seniority um, and would instead be Uh, based on seniority, unless somebody that would be getting fired is of a racial group that's underrepresented. So essentially there's a racial preference being introduced into the way that they lay people off. And it was, it's been touted as a seniority disrupting policy. There is a lot of like um, controversy over whether just being there for a long time makes you a better employee than someone young. But I think that This has become a very um, interesting cultural debate because there is the racial element to it as well. Um, And And just to be clear about what you're
1: saying, sorry, uh, the teaching, and and based on the trends in in Minneapolis, that would mean that a white teacher would be laid off before. So
0: seniority is the first way that they do it. That's the standard. But if somebody who's going to be laid off is of an underrepresented group, then it would kick to the next person who isn't.
1: Got it. So, so and, and black teachers are underrepresented in the teaching force in, in Minneapolis. So that would mean that they would be they would keep their job, and then the next person who has maybe greater yes. seniority, so, who is white, would. Uh, lose their job.
0: Theoretically, if that sort of situation shakes out, yeah, that would be the policy. Um, And and so this is after a two-week standoff between the Teachers Union and the uh, public school system. This is an agreement that they came to that also established other anti-racist and anti-bias provisions. And the basis, like there is statistical, like a statistical basis here, where 18% of teachers are people of color versus 62% of the students that they teach and in 2020 to 2021, 23 percent of layoffs were um, black and brown teachers who made up just 18 percent of the workforce. Um, and they tend to be younger, less experienced, and also therefore hurt by this like seniority kind of hierarchy, which I agree is an issue, because I think if you have young, ambitious teachers, yes. they should be rewarded proportionately. But I don't think yeah, you they bring- call it
1: last in first out. Yeah. Which to me, is like it's the thing that everybody's you know, that they're glancing over on this to be like, yeah, of course you fire the the younger teacher. I'm like, why? If we're talking about a teacher shortage, then you got to keep the young people in the work too. Yeah, how about just
0: like, analyzing how people are based on their performance and merit and not based on seniority or their race. Let's not get crazy. Not like, get crazy. But, but like if we're worried about the seniority thing, like let's not involve like a new level of potential discrimination in, into this whole thing too. Like no, I, I'm with it's, you. it's not, it's not the right solution, but there is an underlying problem that they're getting at where, you know, probably historically it was harder for people of color to become teachers. And so there's a there, They tend to be younger teachers right now at the moment, kind of gaining their footing in the system. And so they shouldn't be disincentivized to do so based on the seniority principle. But, yeah. you know, regardless, this is, I mean, the Constitution is kind of pulled in. The Equal in, Protection the, Clause. Yeah, the Equal Protection Clause, uh, Title Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act, which makes it illegal for employers to racially discriminate in terminations. And that has been upheld in a wide variety of court, um, court decisions in the Supreme Court and the Federal Appeals Court. Um, And the teachers union could be liable here now because, and the, um, and the, the public school system itself, because they've, they've mutually agreed on this, this statement. So I think that, you know, there's a, there's, there was some optimism, but I, there's a, an example of a a Minneapolis senior trial attorney, James Dickey, who said the school district and the union should be on notice that what they've done is illegal and is going to be struck down. And I think that's pretty much the consensus, but you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of shocking remedy to a problem that we're seeing. And it's just, I mean, like. I just want
1: to know who the lawyers are advising these people. You know, you talked about the legal precedents. No idea. There are many laws that are being violated here. And there's this case from 1986, the last time the Supreme Court took up something like this. It was a nearly identical situation. Yeah. And, and it was this case called Wygant versus Jackson Board of Education. This is Jackson, I think, in Michigan. Uh, school district and that court in a 5-4 ruling that was a little tricky because it was like a plurality opinion with different opinions basically said you can't do this and if you took the most permissive opinion that was written in that case which was Sandra Day Mm O'Connor what she said was all right in certain cases you can you can do stuff like this it seemed like the court in general said there's a difference between hiring and firing so hiring is affirmative action whereas in this case it's I don't know what the word we would use for it is Interesting to note that I think this court is going to take an axe to affirmative action, too. But even under existing precedent, yeah. what Sandra Day O'Connor said was, in this case, the data to use is not what the makeup of the students are versus what the makeup of the teaching force is. What she mm-hmm. said was the data that she would allow is what the data of the applicant pool is qualified applicants versus who they wind up selecting. She she said, well, that would prove some kind of discrimination that needs to be remedied. And she said the discrimination, and it seemed like the court in every opinion um, in the majority of that case said the kind of discrimination that would be required for you to do something like this would have to be discrimination that the school district itself is doing right now, not societal discrimination that they're trying to remedy. So that's a pretty narrow set of circumstances. And that's what makes me believe that this isn't going to stand.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't think there's anyone who believes that it will. All
1: right. Some rapid fire updates. What's going on with this Mar-a-Lago affidavit?
0: So it seems like the release of the affidavit is imminent. Um, A federal judge in Florida said that they're inclined to release it um, pending. The DOJ submits redactions by Thursday, which will um, basically censor anything that the public can't know for a variety of reasons and then the judge and the doj will compare their own versions of the redacted document and then uh, potentially release it to the public which i think you know everyone as soon as this happened we were all saying we want to see the warrant we want to see the warrant but like really the warrant doesn't really Mm -hmm. tell us much like i don't think that we're any closer to understanding what happened except for just a little closer just having like like a a list of things but like we don't understand the why of like this is the moment because theoretically we knew that there were boxes that had been there Mm -hmm for a long time. So this could be very revealing. However, there are some hints saying potentially not as much as people have been hyping it up because the DOJ has said that it will be so redacted that it'll be basically unhelpful at this point. They'd have to remove sources, interviewees, investigative methods, et cetera, so as not to foil their whole operation here. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. I think that more public transparency and as much public transparency as possible is the only way to kind of remedy some of the um, cultural angst surrounding this right now. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's in it, but I think we need to be cautiously optimistic about how much will be in it.
1: Yeah, one thing it could reveal though, That probably won't be redacted is the subpoena of the original documents and the potential back and forth that happened between Trump's lawyers and the DOJ, which would help clarify these competing claims about whether there was a subpoena and whether Trump had cooperated or not. So that's what I'll keep an eye on. One more quick update here. The NFL and the Players Association has split the difference on this Deshaun Watson situation, and they've landed on an 11-game suspension for Watson. And uh, originally he got six game suspension, which we talked about. The league pushed for 17, and now we're at 11. This is a really strange situation because, as we talked about when we covered this last time, the NFL is appealing to itself. Mm -hmm. So this idea that they're kind of negotiating with Watson, I find fascinating because they hold all the cards. A lot of people are upset because the NFL didn't do the 17 games. What do you make of all this?
0: I mean, I still come down in the same place where I just – this is not the court of law, and it's not going to operate that way. And it's just a—I'm unsurprised by this, but I mean, at least they're meeting somewhere in the middle. I don't know. Yeah, I—I I, I don't I, have strong feelings.
1: I was hoping for reasons that when we covered it before, for the larger suspension, especially given like the the oh, full season like, suspensions that come down for things like gambling. Like yeah, this would no, seem I mean, like a much more serious uh, set of circumstances. The idea you
0: know. that this like league is reading like what what different transgressions mean in terms of games like I the whole thing just doesn't really make sense like I yeah I don't know it's a legal issue it's not even I don't Um,
1: know well I think that's all we've got Ricky Uh, for our listeners and our people watching on YouTube make sure to give us that five-star rating click the like button let us know what you love about the show and we'll be back here Thursday um, with another show